Hi, I'm Nikki Schreer, and you're listening to The Jazz Session, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. This is episode 593 for the 30th of March, 2022. Vocalist Kalova is a multi-award winning jazz singer known for her ability to weave together her Tosa identity, South African jazz roots and a contemporary approach to songwriting and singing. With two albums out on Universal Music, she is also a beloved educator who recently became a lecturer in jazz studies at the University of Cape Town. She's performed across South Africa and is one of the most exciting figures in the South African jazz community. Here is our conversation. <laughs> I can't call you Nomfundo, it's too formal. Welcome to the Jazz Session and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me and a big greetings to all the listeners of the Jazz Session. Oh my gosh, what a warm welcome. Okay, we have to start at the beginning for anybody who is new to you and your music. So can you tell me about your first foray into jazz? Probably I imagine it started high school-ish and then through university and into your current role as performer and astounding educator yeah actually yeah you're quite right um i started classical piano when i was 12 and all of that and that was primary school uh grade what do they call it now grade six i think it was and i remember actually when i think back now i think about how fortunate i was and i wasn't really aware at the time of how fortunate I was to have access to that kind of music, to that kind of repertoire, because in our school choir, you know, we were singing Cole Porter, we were singing Gershwin, um, you know, and all that music, which which has jazz inflections and kind of, one can look at that repertoire as like an intro to jazz. It has the kind of harmonies of flat sevens and stuff like that. Um, And so my ears were attuned to it from, from sort of, high school mid high school right and the reason why I studied jazz actually I didn't really think I wanted to but I knew that I wanted to study music and I wanted to study music at the University of Cape Town and at that time it was the emergence of artists like Jimmy Lulu and Judith Sapuma and Musa Manzini who were like kind of this very afro jazz but very hip sound that was not quite or it wasn't pop it had a sophisticated thing to it and I was like I want to be about this life so then I was like well go study where they studied and go and study what they studied and that's how I really enrolled for a degree in jazz but to say that I was an average jazz lover when I was 18 would be completely disingenuous it's it grew on me you know over time and I 
I tell my students this all the time, especially first year students, that when I was in first year, I didn't love jazz. I didn't really know what it was. <laughs> you know, I didn't really, but I was like, there's an end goal here and I don't want to be studying anything else. I don't want to be doing something else. So I'm going to stick it out. And I was quite intrigued by jazz theory and harmony and this tradition and the bands that were happening, you know, at university and going to the concerts, performance classes, there was, and, and watching singers perform with the big band. And I think it was only really when I hit maybe age 20, 21, third year of varsity, third year of the four-year degree, that I started to have, to develop a love of jazz, you know, um, and I've loved it since, you know, and, I, and I've kind of immersed myself in it since. So I think I have a very sort of, um, I have an empathy towards young jazz musicians and young jazz students who, because I understand what they want to do. And then they come to varsity to study jazz. And then they're kind of like, hmm, is this really what this is? And I'm like, I understand, honey, you'll get to a point where you actually, it clicks for you. This tradition, this music clicks for you. It doesn't have to be now. And yeah, and I, I, I'm, I've been doing it since, you know, and I teach it now. And it's obviously taken on various manifestations now, you know, with, yeah, the jazz, not being completely traditional, but also still being jazz rooted, even if it's Afro jazz or, you know, whatever people call these genres these days. I had such valuable advice for for students and people coming to this music. But as you touched on there, that your music is a hybrid because you're not singing Gershwin and Cole Porter. I mean, you can, but you're not. So are you aware of when, at what point, you kind of figured out the kind of music that you wanted to make, the kind of jazz music you wanted to make? And was it at all challenging for you at any point getting to that landing place where you're like ah this is what I sound like when I write music because you're a phenomenal songwriter and composer this is the kind of music that I write and compose and this is now my identity as a jazz musician this is the kind of jazz I make yes so there was a definite sort of a circa like a, a, a it was around about when I was about, I must have been about 21, 22, and it was towards the end of my jazz degree um, that I knew the kind of jazz that I wanted to record. Now, remember, at this point in time, I'd been listening to a lot of Miriam Makeba. I'd been listening to a lot of Spongile Kumalo, who was kind of this bridge between classical and jazz, right? Um, so I used albums like Spongile Kumalo's Live at the Market Theatre, right, um, where she sings, you know, also she sings Bacon Civic with um, you know, repertoire on there, you know, she sings, um, you know, Mo Moses Molelekwa's repertoire on there and Abdullah Ibrahim's repertoire on there. And so I, I knew that there was this rich South African jazz tradition that I wanted to be a part of. And here's Miriam Makeba singing kind of folk African music, right? But also with an aesthetic that was in a way um, global. I don't even know if I, that makes any sense at all. Um, and maybe that aesthetic was created by some of the instrumentation on her albums, because there were times obviously where she would be accompanied by very minimal, minimalistic um, you know, instrumentation. And then she also had albums that were sort of very um, uh, arranged, right? So I was listening to this and I was listening to what is my language? What does Kosa sound like, you know, over, a jazz progression, right? What is what what is the click of my language sound like? What is the lyric? What is of vernacular sound like against the backdrop of this particular sound? Because I've been studying Ella Fitzgerald, you know, you study the songbook, the American jazz songbook, right? And it's English. And then you study, you know, Latin American and you study Boston, nobody's singing Portuguese. Well, you think you're singing Portuguese until you actually hear, hear and things like that. Mm, well, maybe that was, you know, but either way, we were trying, right? We were faking it till we make it. And so I thought, you know, I wanted, I always knew that I wanted my music to speak to who I was. And I think the, 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 these women and these artists whom I've named were, for me, good examples of what my music could sound like. And, and I knew that I wanted to write in Tosa because I wanted my music to be rooted in my identity. And when I started to write music, I didn't really kind of, there was no sort of crazy method of 
it must be this or it has to be 6-8 or the groove must be African or must it must have this bass drum thing and it must you know I just wrote you know I really just wrote and maybe it came from a place of subconsciously having absorbed all the music that I'd been listening to and then when I started to write you know little bits and pieces of all this music that I'd listened to were coming together um, you know and I remember lamenting to a former teacher of mine um, Natasha Roth whom you know well right when I used to go to lessons with her and I'd be like how do you write songs like I don't write songs and I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm weak or I lack and I can't get booked for gigs where you know uh, where venues want original music because I don't write original music and she said the most amazing thing to me and she said to be a great musician and to be a great artist and singer you don't have to write your own songs you know, she was like, there's such deep artistry in interpreting songs that already exist. You know, and she said, so maybe focus your energy on that and really growing your craft, you know, through the, you know, through the practice of interpretation and delivery, right, and nuance. And when you've got something to say, and as you get older, you might find that you'll start to write songs. But don't push it. You know, and that's why I only started to write music after I'd graduated my master's already. I mean, it was a it was a while after studying that I started to write. You know, and and I'm I'm happy I did that. I think I needed that assurance that says you'll find yourself, and your music will mimic who you are, and your music will be your identity. But if you force it, you're gonna lose the plot. You know, so yeah. And the transition, it was pretty seamless, to be honest with you. It was seamless. You know, because I think jazz is an art form that is so big and it's so um, accommodating that when I started to write songs, I felt like the, the colors in this palette of jazz, I had so many that I could just paint and I could just put stuff together. But also being very, very aware that just because I've got all these colors, it doesn't mean I have to use all of them. You know, so I find that with South African music, with African music, with some of the songs that I've written, Three quarters enough. One verse is enough. You can sing that one verse lyric twice, you know, rather that than trying to force some, you know, trying to be deep and trying to do all these reharms and use all the chops. It, does, it doesn't have to be that. And I think, you know, it was seamless in that way that I studied jazz, I had access to the theory and to how the harmonies work and the language. So I could just create the sentences and then decide what to use and what not to use until something became a song. Uzundi beleke kandisiwa Undi bapa manweva kandisopa Undi twali senda kusindwa Gobu litembala dropping so many fantastic names and for the listeners out there who want to know more and hear more from the South African Jazz Songbook, I'll put all these names in the show notes and if they are folks who have websites, I'll link to the websites as well so you can go and have a listen to their music. You mentioned Sibongida Kumalo. I can't really talk to you and, and not ask you about her. And the other thing that I wanted to say for folks who don't know, she was an opera singer as much as she was a jazz singer and as much as she breathed life into these songs by people like Becky and Victor and Tony that became part of the South African Jazz songbook. And so that's also really interesting because it then gives you a very broad idea of 
what can South African jazz be or what can jazz be? And really, a lot of people felt that way. I remember seeing her perform with Danilo Perez. So she had an international reputation. But I do think of her as something of a a mother mentor figure to you. And I became very aware of that very special relationship that you had with her, uh, certainly in the last probably five, six, seven years. And we should mention that she passed away really quite recently. It must feel very recent to you too. I'm aware of that. So can you talk about in some way she might have given you some sort of like post-postgraduate life, jazz, music, everything, education? Because you spent a lot of time in her company and the conversations you guys must have had. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. Could you share, you know, one or two or three of the kind of pieces of wisdom that she left you with? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when we, I mean, the fact that we talk about her in past tense is also just completely just, you know, I mean, it's crazy. You know this. Um, And you've hit the nail on the head, really. She, this idea that we are, you know, enigmas, that when we are talented, we are these, you know, uh, this kind of God complex and we think that we are divinely, it's absolute nonsense. You know, we learn this stuff from people, right? We there are people who've come before us, you know. We, it's it's we're passing it down, and I think Swangelo Kumalo for me was that person whom I know, and I've said it to her that she was a school to me, right? Because there's a, there's different types of music schools, and varsity is only but one, and um and Swangelo was definitely a school to me, and. And I didn't need to even have conversations with her because I met her way after I'd started listening to her music. And so, but listening to her music was enough, right? Because she had a refinement and I could hear that she actually had respect for her work and her craft through listening to her albums. Um, I, I, I could hear that. And I knew when I was very young at 18, 19, that that's what I wanted for myself. Like, I just knew it. So by the time I met her, the agenda was already set that, woman, I love you. I love your work. And I am now going to stick by your side and basically, you know, just sponge off as much as I can, not just from your albums, but also from who you are, right? And you know this because you met her, you know, that there was something about who she was, that when you listened to her music, you kind of were like, well, how could you? how can you be so great and also just be so down to earth, right? And so, yes, you're right. I spent a lot of time, we had a very close relationship. And the thing with Swongela, I think her wisdom to me was communicated in a very strange way because there was wisdom, there was wisdom in her humility. I don't think she ever really understood how good she was at what she did. She never let it sink in. She never let, she never bought into the hype. And, and I know this because we would be, I remember the one year, it was a, a jazz festival in Johannesburg. And the, the day after the two-day festival, we were going to a radio interview with a couple of singers and we would all, we were all required to sing something. And she was the eldest, obviously, she, you know, or the oldest of, of the singers that were there. And, but all of us as young ones looking up to her as like our mother figure but she sat waiting for her turn and she was she was nervous and she said to me I'm so nervous you know just singing you know just being surrounded by by all of you guys you guys are such incredible singers and I can't believe I have to now sing you know in front of you guys and you you know and she was nervous and I was like girl have you met yourself do you know who you are because I'm happy to remind you you know um and, I, and, and she would obviously she'd step to the microphone and she would just be absolutely amazing. But I think there's something about that kind of just, just being your feet so firmly on the ground and not just that, but recognizing that others are also good, right? That lack of insecurity that says, you know, um, that I can be good and you can be good. And, 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 Yes, obviously, I, I might feel a bit like, oh, am I good enough? But that doesn't mean that I can't acknowledge how good you are, even if you're 10, 20 years younger than me, 
right? And I, I'm going to acknowledge how good you are to the point where I'm going to be nervous to sing next to you. Meanwhile, she's swung in a kumalo. And I think that stayed with me, you know? It stayed with me. And, I, and now I'm free to tell younger singers how brilliant they are if I really think they are without feeling like it takes anything away from how good I am, right? Um, and so that's why I'm saying sometimes wisdom doesn't come in the form of words, but rather in the form of actions and in the form of just, you know, just kind of a, a general disposition and a generosity of spirit. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, when I speak to other singers, they, they echo the same sentiment, you know, and we've been in spaces with her so many times before and she would always just kind of marvel at how good everybody else was. <laughs> and yet we were like, girl, please, you know, we bow at your feet, you know. Um, yeah, and I, I, I'd like to think that I carry that spirit of humility, um, you know, and she definitely taught me that. She taught me that. And I'll, I'll, I'll do everything that I can to, to never lose that. You know, to be able to tell my students who are 18 that you are pretty amazing. You're very, very amazing, you know, and not feel like, oh, you know, is it appropriate to tell such a, such a young person how good she is? You know, because they look up to me. So they should be telling me how good I am. I, you know, I'm happy to tell them now. Obviously, I won't say it if I don't mean it. <laughs> it's not a compliment I give, you know, sort of just willy nilly, but I can. And I'm, and I'm easy to do that. So, that was Swangile, you know, that was Swangile, not afraid to share the space, not afraid to take the candle, light hers, pass it on, you know. And I was actually listening, so maybe I'm long-winded, I was listening to Little Girl, where she plays with Shannon Mode, right? The saxophonist Shannon Mode. And the way she speaks about Shannon on that live recording, you know, it's, um, it's beautiful. And she says, this is my daughter. Right, she says, this is my daughter, Shannon Mode. And, and when Shannon comes in with the sax solo, she was, she, it's like she's responding to that. She's responding to the fact that she's just been referred to as a daughter. And it does something to your psyche. Because when I listen to Shannon Mode's solo on, on Little Girl, on that live concert, there's something about it. You know? And then you realize that it means so much to be told that you are a daughter to me or that you are good or that you matter or that your craft and your talent is worth something. You know, it just elevates you, you know. Um, and I don't know, I hope Shannon, you know, if she's listening to this and I, I'm sure Shannon remembers that moment, you know, I, I'm sure she remembers that moment. So that's what's wrong Yeah. Well, if we move on from people who have been important figures in your life and your mentorship and how you carry forward what you've learned from them, certainly from Sibongile. Let's talk about your recordings. You have two albums that came out on Universal Music. Kusile came out in 2012 and From Now On came out in 2015. So where's my new music? No, I'm just kidding. Um, Fair enough. I wanted to know, <laughs> what did you learn? from first to second album that changed? And what would your words of advice about recording be to somebody who was going to go into the studio and make their first album? So to be honest, I mean, to be brutally honest, and this is me just laying it bare, with the first album, I had expectations. I had expectations. I was a jazz graduate from a very reputable school, university, and I felt like I was owed something that, you know, that I'm going to put out of an album and this is what should happen in return, right? Someone who's come out of a program like this puts out an album. This is what I'm expecting is going to happen once this album is out, <laughs> right? And needless to say, you know, those expectations were not necessarily all met. So when I recorded the second been album, there. <laughs> girl, you know, we've all been there. <laughs> I'm preaching to the choir, aren't I? And so um, when I released the second album, I had none. I had none. I had absolutely none. Um, apart from the fact that I was like, you know what? What will be will be. At this point, I was like, what will be will be. And I knew that nobody owed me anything. And most certainly the industry didn't owe me anything. 
musically it was fine because I had freedom to record, you know, in the recording process for both albums. So both Kusile and from now on, I had complete carte blanche to record what I wanted, how I wanted. So the musical aspect of the album and the control aspect in terms of how much I was doing, how much I could control, that was not an issue. And Universal Music was really amazing in that, amazing in that sense, right? Because it's not always that you get that kind of freedom when you sign with a major label. So the issue was with me the first time. I was young and I had expectations. I think the second time round, and I mean, look, both albums won awards, really prestigious awards, and that was really great. But then you also learn very quickly that awards have a lifespan. Sometimes the lifespan of an award is a week. Sometimes it's a month. It doesn't guarantee you much. It's a hype in the moment. It's great. You get to be called award-winning something, something. But what does it mean in tangible, you know, in tangible terms, right? So... So definitely, and I mean, obviously, I mean, I, re- I released the second album from now on in 2015. You can imagine now as I prepared to go into studio for the third album, you know, a lot wiser, older. Um, I know my way around the industry. I also know what were, what the causes of, of my former disillusionment were. And I've also, I'm kinder to myself because I also realized now when I look back that the system was always rigged. You know, just always rigged, you know, um, whether your music is available and how many shops or with, you know, how many retail stores are prepared to sell your album, to stock your album, all that kind of thing. It was all, you know, it, it was all kind of rigged because it's like, mm, nah, you're, a, you're jazz, you know, we're not sure you're going to sell, so we're not going to stock your album. Meanwhile, you're sitting at home thinking, how come no one's buying my album? It's probably not good enough. And then you realize that, no, honey, that's not, that's not it. It's not that your album is not good enough. It's also because half of the stuff or three quarters of the stuff that's playing on radio, you know, it's not there because it's good. It's there because someone knows someone who knows someone who knows someone who got a contact and it's leveraging the, you know, it's, it's association, affiliation. So when you're younger, you don't know that stuff. And you just, you, and you just feel horrible about yourself. And I took a knock. I think like many artists have, your self-esteem starts to suffer. You know, you start to question how good you are. You know, you start to think, did I make the right choice? Take, you know, studying music and recording albums, you know, and you kind of go through this, um, you know, this high and this low and this high and this low and this high. And people know who you are, but you're sitting at home. You don't have gigs. You're broke. And people know who you are. And you're like, how can people know who I am? And everyone tells me how good I am but I'm sitting at home and I don't have gigs. I'm broke. It doesn't make any sense. You can't reconcile it. You're like, it doesn't compute. Like what, it, you know what I mean? So it's a lot of stuff, you know, but you go through it. You, you know, you, you knock on doors. Some of them open, some of them don't, you know, um, and you get older, your skin grows thicker and, um, and your and your reasons for doing this start to morph into something a little bit bigger, right? And they morph into something a little bit more bigger, and and you realize that you know what, I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this as an as a release. You know, this is my skill. This is my craft. Um, and I'm not going to be too precious about it anymore. You know, and you afford yourself that freedom, and you take it as it comes. quick note from me, Nikki, to tell you how you can best support the jazz session if that's something that tickles your fancy. This podcast is made possible thanks to the support of listeners who are so enthused by these conversations that they head over to Patreon to join the Jazz Session's Patreon page. They become patrons. If you go to thejazzsession.com slash join... 
That's thejazzsession.com slash join. It will link you to the Patreon page and you'll be able to find out more about how you can become a member for as little as $5 per month today. So please do head over to that link if that sounds interesting and enticing to you. There are all sorts of perks to be had and there are only two tiers of membership, $5 a month or $10 a month. Take your pick. The other way that you can support the podcast is by rating or reviewing the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This takes a matter of seconds, rating it to be specific, and it helps with the podcast's visibility on web pages, in searches. It helps other folks who might be interested in these conversations find the podcast really important and invaluable in the world of podcasting. The other way you can support this show is by tweeting, Facebooking, or Instagramming about the show at large or about specific episodes that you know you really enjoy so please do feel free to give the show a shout out and if you tag the jazz session on any of those social media platforms I'll be sure to repost your wonderful praise and gladly so so thank you for listening and for any support that you may show the podcast now or in the near future now back to my conversation with Nomfi if we go a little bit broader and we look at South African jazz as a subgenre, for lack of a better term, what excites you about that genre and the South African jazz landscape, community, whatever you want to call it? And what do you think that people who aren't super familiar with the genre, the musicians, the music that is being made now, the music that has been made in the past, what do you think they should know? You know, maybe if you'd asked me this about four years ago, three, four years ago, I would have probably expressed a lot more excitement than I have now. Um, I think, you know, it was exciting then because Naturally, you know, younger people were coming into the space um, and because obviously historically jazz, you know, just like, you know, the preserve of, you know, particular kind of person and a particular kind of, you know, age group and all of that. And um, and so now it was really, really great to see young people participating and young people wanting to be jazz musicians and really getting into this art form, you know, we would go to Grahamstown to the National Art Festival and it was like a hub, you know, we'd go to jazz festivals, it's a hub, it, you know, this, it was really kind of this burgeoning sort of space, right? Um, and the music, it's, it was interesting, people were coming with fresh sounds. I think now, 2022, we might have reached a bit of a, a plateau of sorts, like a bit of a stalemate, I think. And this is me being, again, honest, because I think I'm too old now to not say it as I see it. Because I listen to some of the albums now and I feel like, or the music, and I feel like it's the same. It's the same. Um, you know, and you find that now the industry or the jazz community in South Africa has gotten smaller in a way because it's the same people under different units or unit names or under different concept names, album wise and stuff, you know, and I and I and I want to caution my colleagues, you know, um, you know, around this to say we've got to we've got to keep it open still, right? Um, and that it's okay not to put out music if you don't have new music to put out. Rather than people, you know, us releasing these albums after albums, but they actually sound exactly the same as the one before. So that's why I'm saying if you'd asked me this three years ago, I probably would have been a lot more excited. But now I'm not necessarily that excited. Um, but there are obviously great things. And I mean, you know, and, and, the, and the musicians, the quality of musicians that we have is absolutely amazing. There's no doubt about it. You know, it, that's unquestionable. But I think maybe we might have reached a point where we're just not really you know, kind of maybe digging deep enough into the creativity. Maybe we're not being, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I just, it's just a thing that I feel like I, I listen to music now and I'm like, it's great. And people are, but I'm like, 
it reminds me of an artist, Nelson Magamo, South African artist who's got this T-shirt line. It says, you know, it's written, I prefer your old work. You know, it's painted on the back. It says, I prefer your old work. And it stuck with me because sometimes I really think that. And maybe that's why he's actually got that, you know, he's got that T-shirt because it's probably, probably he also gets that to say, oh, I prefer your old work. And it's annoying for when people say that because then it means that we can't evolve. Like, what do you mean you prefer my old work? You know, this is where I am now. And if you can't appreciate where I am now, then I'm sorry, right? And so, but, so we vac I vacillate between that, between going, I want us to grow. We should all evolve. We should all move forward. But then I think just because I'm releasing album after album, it doesn't automatically mean that those albums symbolize growth. So the, quant the quantity of my release is not commensurate necessarily with how much I'm growing. You know what I do? I make sense. So, so yeah. And I mean, there's there are new players coming into the space, and that's really really great. And maybe also a part of it is just the fact that jazz venues in South Africa, live music venues, are dwindling by the hour, if if there are any left at all. And so maybe that's also partly why it's hard to be excited because the spaces are minimal. And the spaces that are available are often occupied by the same people. Um, so, yeah, so I don't know if we're in a particularly bright space. Um, and that's just my personal, yeah, that's just my, and I don't know, maybe it's like that around other parts of the world. I'd be interested to know. Yeah, I mean, if, if people could see me, I'm nodding profusely. My head's about to fall off as Nomfi talks. And then also laughing at that. Is, what's his name? Nelson Macambo. <laughs> Nelson Macambo, yeah. <laughs> T-shirt, that's great. Um, that's so great. Yeah, I think what you're alluding to is the idea of quality over quantity. And the other thing that you are looping back to is what you said earlier, that this, this music takes time. As people, just, you know, not musicians, but people in general growing up, evolving, learning how to think, maturing fully that takes time so if you're trying to document and put out things that are showing who you are at any given time you can't do that with too much frequency because yeah. your evolution is much slower than and the pace of the it release. is the process of going. yeah exactly exactly yeah, yeah. and i do i mean when you say uh, you know wonder what's going on in the rest of the world it's interesting because i i I think for folks who are not very familiar with the South African jazz scene, and I should say, Nomfi and I met studying at the University of Cape Town, and Nomfi is now a jazz lecturer at the University of Cape Town. So that is still the preeminent place to go if you want to study jazz in Southern Africa. Um, although other universities have great jazz departments, Vits, Pretoria, UKZN, etc. Because um, we have colleagues there and we don't want to piss anyone off in this conversation. No, but there was a big exodus of working jazz musicians in the last, what would you say, eight, mm. eight years, yeah. 10 years, from Cape Town to Johannesburg. And when we were studying at the University of Cape Town, we were part of a really amazing group of young South African jazz musicians, people that included... Bokani Dyer, Shane Cooper, our friend Chris Engel, um, uh, Luanda Gorkwana. I'm missing out people, but I think about our peers, Mandisi Giantis, not that he's moved to Joburg, uh, you would know. But, um, or you'd be shocked to find out on this podcast. Oh, uh, Nikki. <laughs> since he is your, your, since he is your partner, what? Um, but, but they all, either left country or moved to Johannesburg where there is more of a vibe and more of a buzz. And Cape Town had so many jazz venues when we were at Varsity and those, many of those are no longer, as you said. So there's this, this whole shift in vibe and that must do something to the output, the quality of the music that is being created. And I think it'll be interesting to compare what happened in Cape Town with what perhaps has happened in a lot of these big cities. I'm thinking New London. York, I'm thinking London, mm. expensive cities. Now, post-pandemic, 
where it was expensive for mm. mere mortals to live there, never mind jazz musicians. And now with the pandemic, so many of them have left because they've said, well, actually, I can't afford to be here. And actually, I don't need to be here. And they've also lost big venues. You know, New York has lost the jazz standard. I mean, Cornelia Street Cafe, I think, was pre-pandemic. But it'll be interesting to see what that does for, yeah, for all those communities and scenes. But um, the South African one is an interesting one because the subgenre is very much from... Mm south africa from that country that space whereas american jazz does really exist across the continent and then well into other continents including africa and including countries like south africa yeah so it's a it's interesting to hear your thoughts on that because i've never asked you before yeah and you know and it's you know you know you and i go way back so it's this is a conversation that you and i would be having at a coffee shop and um and so that's really what I'm thinking and that's really where I'm at. And, um, and that doesn't really even come from a place of, um, you know, like some kind of superiority complex. I haven't put out music in a while, but you are right. You know, it, 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 something happens, you know, and I think we've all been through a lot. Um, but I think oftentimes we, we get caught in this belief that the more we, we every time we release, we are, um, we're showing, we're exhibiting some kind of growth. And you're right that evolution doesn't happen at, at such a fast pace, you know? And so, yeah. And I think, I mean, it excites me to think about recording my next album because I can, because I, it, there's been so much space and so much has happened in between, right? I've gone and done an MBA, you know, I've started a family, um, I'm a full-time academic now, um, I've started to write for paper, you know, uh, papers for publications, um, I've gone through loss and grief, um, you know, and in as much as I've gone through birth and new things and stuff like that. So um, it's interesting, I feel like I, I'll have so much more to bring to my third offering than if I'd released a year or two after the last one. But it can't go that you are a lecturer at the University of Cape Town at South African College of Music in Jazz Studies. And your students love you. I know this because I was fortunate enough to teach alongside you for many years. And uh, you taught me a great deal, even though I was not one of your students. Um, and you also counseled me because gosh knows, Nikki's not great at setting boundaries. But <laughs> all that to say, what are 
a few, one, two, I don't want to limit you, um, of the most important aspects of being a musician or a vocalist, because it is its own thing, let's not pretend, uh, that you try to impart to your students. If you feel like there's a recurring theme that keeps coming up between you and them in conversation. So the one thing, interestingly, we had this discussion with a, a class that I teach. I teach an improvisation class. Um, and it was a second year improv class. And we were, you know, just listening to music and, um, you know, just using the, the time to talk about different forms of improvisation. And the one thing that I, that I try and kind of really persuade my students to believe and to think and to, is that, Oftentimes we hear that the voice needs to mimic or the voice must, is an instrument. And so therefore, you know, we try and make it sound like an instrument. Yeah, the voice is going to, you know, make your voice sound like a horn, you know, while horn players are trying to make their horn sound like voices and all of that. And that oftentimes when we are performing in ensembles as vocalists, because you're quite right, being a vocalist is a different thing. And to pretend as though it's not would be pretentious and disingenuous. So when we're performing as vocalists in an ensemble, maybe we should really release or em emancipate ourselves from trying to sound instrumental and trying to sound like a pianist or a horn player or this, especially when it comes to improv, that what is it that your voice can do that no other instrument can do? What, what sounds can your voice produce that no other instrument in the ensemble can produce? It can be anything. It can be a wail. It, 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 you can be wailing. You can be, I don't know, screaming. I mean, I'm being obviously extreme, but I'm trying to drive a point that the voice can do things that only it can do. And how about we look at improvisation through the, through the lens of how unique is the voice? So, you know, and I played, I played recordings of Rachel Farrell. I played recordings of... Bobby uh, 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 McFerrin, right? And I'm going, listen to what he's doing. What he's doing with his voice. No one in the, the pianist won't be able to do that. The bass player won't. It's so uniquely vocal. He can create all those things. Or Rachel Farrell can create those sounds. Where she's almost kind of like half screaming, half screeching or doing stuff. But she's improvising. And it's absolutely phenomenal. Sarah Vaughan could actually do that. She could do like these strange things with her voice, but they stood out and they kind of cemented her place in the ensemble as a vocalist. Rather than trying to see after the piano solo, after whether you can do the same thing, whether you can sound the same as whatever other instruments in the ensemble, you know? And it's not to say that trying to do that is necessarily wrong. But it's kind of having a broader sense of what the voice can bring in an environment of improvisation. So that's what I tell the students, because not everybody wants to scat like, like Ella Fitzgerald. Not everyone wants to do that. Not everyone, it's not everyone's bad. And quite honestly, maybe we don't really want to do it after varsity. Is it really that important that we actually have that skill? Right. To some of us, it is. To some of us, it's not. And it cannot be the barometer by which we, me we measure how good or how authentic a jazz singer one is, you know, and or whether, you know, you're a good improviser because you can do this or that. And again, taking us back to Swangile Kumalo, when I listen, I think about, the, you know, her performing with Jack Bejanet and that intercontinental ensemble. You were at that gig, right? At the Cape Town International Jazz Festival. Well, you, you were there, right? Yeah. You know, and you were right because you said she was an opera singer. So she had to think outside of the box that what could she do with this voice that was quite operatic in this jazz environment? How could she improvise? What could she draw from? Right? And, she, and at first, I think she, we had this conversation. She'd be like, I don't know, I'm not a jazz singer. I don't know, I can't get like you guys do and all of that. So I've got to, you know. And when I think back now, I think that that was quite brilliant because she thought, okay, well, this is the voice I have. And with my classical and opera training, I can do some stuff, actually. And so therefore, I'm going to bring this to this ensemble. And I'm going to improvise in this way. You might not like it, but it's unique. 
and it's different to anything else that everyone else is doing in the ensemble. So if my students can, you know, only take one thing, you know, it would be that from me, you know, that there's not, there's no linear way of, improv of, of improvising and there's no one way of being a jazz singer. Let go of that, you know, use your voice, explore it. That's a beautiful, beautiful gem on which to love and leave you. Nomfi, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the jazz session today. What a treat. Thank you for having me. It's been absolutely amazing. I'm so glad we finally pinned down a time to chat to each other. It's been really, really great. Thank you to today's guest, Nomfundo Kalova, or Nomfi as I call her. I will make a note of all the amazing South African jazz artists that she mentioned in conversation, and I'll also write down the tracks that were played in the show notes for today's episode. A huge thank you to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music of this show. You're welcome to follow The Jazz Session on Twitter at Jazz Sesh and on Facebook and Instagram at The Jazz Session. There is also a YouTube page to which you can subscribe if you want to watch video excerpts of my conversations with The Jazz Session's guests. A huge thank you to the patrons over at thejazzsession.com join. Head there today if you want to become a Patreon member and thank you to the listeners for tuning in and to any support that you may shower upon this show whether it's telling a friend family or four-legged pal about how much you enjoy these conversations my name is nikki schrera and i will see you next week for another conversation with an astounding jazz musician about their music and their process here on the jazz session <laughs> <laughs>